Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? This is God's word. Amen. Morning, everybody. Remind me not to do that again. It's good to see you guys. Um, yesterday uh, was, was pretty epic. I was walking through my courtyard in the morning with my, my son, my older son, and we were getting ready to go meet Dale at Copa Vida. And um, as we start walking through the courtyard, I noticed my neighbor, who's, we've got this cute little Jack Russell. He's just like a sweet, like he's been rescued, and he's just, he's living in grace, man. He's just happy that life is so good, always <laughs> smiling. And um, we're walking through the courtyard. I noticed my neighbor who's got, um, he, it was the cute little chocolate pit bull puppy, but it has grown. I don't know what they're feeding it, but this thing is like heavier than me, and it's massive, and he like looks at my dog. And I'm like, oh, oh boy, this is going to be fun. And then I realize the neighbor's roommate's walking him, and he doesn't have a chain on the pit bull. And out of nowhere, the pit bull makes a beeline for my Jack Russell. And it all happens so quick. You're trying to figure stuff out. And my dog came this close to death, puncture wounds all over him. He got bit like all over the place, and he's shaking and scared and, and freaking out. So that kind of changes your plans for the day. Um, and we're just glad, you know, again, he's living in grace. He's never been happier to be alive. He's the happiest little <laughs> dog right now. And um, he's that close to death. And I'm so glad he didn't die because two weeks ago, three weeks ago, my daughter's faithful little Siamese, she's the sweetheart of our family, Zoe. Uh, I say sweetheart semi-facetiously. She's, <laughs> if anybody came over to our house, she was not um, the welcoming type of cat that you would expect. But anyway, she passed away in the middle of the night, and she died. And I thought, man, that would have been a twofer. That would have been really, really bad to lose all of our pets within a couple of weeks. And um, all that to say, it just got, it got death on my mind, thinking about death. And, and realizing that in our culture, we don't really think about death. We don't talk about death very much, do we? And... Um, so, yeah, I was watching a documentary over, over Christmas break, and it was about doctors in Japan. And this Japanese doctor was being interviewed, and he said, yeah, when people are suffering with terminal illnesses, we don't tell them that they're dying. And, you know, and they don't ask. They just, you know, they, they prefer to not know whether or not they're going to pass. And the Western reporter was asking, why? Why don't you tell them? that they're dying, and he said, well, you know, in Japan, we don't have the belief in the afterlife that Americans have, and so this life is really all you get, and therefore, we, we just want people to enjoy the rest of their days, and we, it's too hard. It's a much harder thing in Japan to accept death, and I thought, actually, I think he might be giving us in the, in the West a little more credit than we're due, because maybe in Japan, the Japanese deny death by not asking their doctors for anything, but in America... We deny death by suing our doctors 
for everything because death is foreign to us. Death is this thing that's invading our space and our life, and we don't like the idea of it. It's not supposed to happen. Decay, death, sickness, it's just, it's not supposed to happen. You look at the advertisements, and, and you see the, the beauty advertisements. You flip through the reader and see all the stuff about cosmetic surgery, and you realize that there's never been a generation more focused on, on death and more scared of aging and in denial. In the last 25 years, there's been this movement that's kind of started to surge, and uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but you can read it through the articles, and it's, it's a movement of thought in medicine and philosophy and social sciences and so on. And the movement says, basically, death is just natural. There's nothing strange about death. We just need to get to a place where we accept it. It's just normal. It's just natural. And one of the leaders of the movement, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she said this in an article I was reading. The moment of death is neither frightening nor painful. It's just peaceful cessation. And the idea is just a drop of water going back to the ocean. Death is neither frightening nor is it painful. It's peaceful cessation. If you're like me, that's bull, right? <laughs> because I think everybody I know is terrified of death. We instinctively know there's something wrong with it. It's monstrous. It's perverse. It's not something I want to see happen to anybody I love or anybody I know or me. I mean, just thinking about when we woke up that morning and, and Zoe, the cute little fluffy Zoe, had rigor mortis had set in, and this is what she looked like. It was terrifying. Death is terrifying. I think the real question we have to ask is why would everybody be maybe, you could say, conspiring together, philosophers, doctors, professors, advertisers, to deny death? Ernest Becker actually wrote a book called The Denial of Death. Ernest Becker's not a, not a believer, and this is what he says, a quote in the book. The reason we deny death is not an innocent one. There's a motive behind it. We don't want to admit we're out of control. We don't want to admit that we rely on a transcendent something that supports us. I get that, you know, because as modern people here in the West, what makes life meaningful to us is choice. The idea of options. You're an American. Nobody can tell you how to dress. Nobody can tell you how to live. You can choose your way, vote your way, do everything the way you want. I think that's why we're stymied by death. Because death does not negotiate. It offers absolutely no choices. And I think it's also probably why in our culture you see the rise of belief in things like reincarnation. And it's growing in our fiction. You know, we love movies like, like uh, Patrick Swayze and Ghost, you know, where you can make pottery together to the sound of the Righteous Brothers singing Unchained Melody. And, and you can... You know what I mean? You can make choices after death. Or you've got the Lord of the Rings where the elves are beautiful and powerful and immortal. And then like, who, do you, who would you pick of any of the characters in Lord of the Rings? The Hobbit? No way, man. I want to I be an elf. Or Twilight. Right, you get the vampires. And they're not those like Nosferatu, scary looking vampires anymore. They're sexy. They look how we want to look, you know, and they don't burn up in the sun. They take off their shirt and they sparkle. You know? <laughs> I want to be a vampire. That's amazing, you know? And they have these perfect little babies. And life is just the way that we would love for it to be. There are modern-day gods and goddesses, and they live forever, but it's fiction. That's all they are is fiction. 
And the reason we can't stand the idea of death is because death is certain. It's inexorable. It's immutable. You can't change the channel on it. You can't stick a lawyer on it and get some federal arbitrator to change things. It's relentless, and we can't stand it. We can't take it. Now, my question to you today is, what are you going to do with death? It's the only reality we know about. It's the only reality that's certain in your future. The only thing. And I'm telling you today that unless you know that tomorrow you're prepared to die without fear or regret, you're living in denial. You're living in denial of the only thing that you're sure of. Are you, are you prepared for that? You're prepared for everything else, right? You're saving up for things that may or may not even happen. You're saving up for, for weddings and future and bliss and vacations and dream homes and good times and bad times, and they may or may not happen. The only thing you know will happen is the thing you're unprepared for. Unless you can tell me today that you're prepared to die tomorrow without fear and without regret. Can you? Then you're in denial too, if you can't. Jesus and Jesus alone tells us how to face death without fear or regret. And here's what he says in this text. Point number one, there is a place for you. Do you see that? He says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. A place. What's that mean? Well, he means that human beings need a place. I go away to prepare a place for you. Jesus is trying to comfort these men, right? He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. There's a lot of troubled hearts right now in our society, aren't there? Our culture is tense. It's divided. We're realizing our relationships have minefields that we didn't even know existed. People are polarizing and demonizing each other, and there's a very real threat of injustice and instability. We need what Jesus has to say here now more than ever. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He's trying to comfort them. And who are these people he's trying to comfort? Well, we know where he's sitting. He's in the Last Supper with his disciples. And this is the same conversation that Kenny started last week. He's having this conversation with his disciples. And Peter's just said, hey, Lord, why can't we follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, you're actually going to deny me before the cock crows three, three times you're going to deny me. And so this is the same conversation. And ultimately, we find that, yes, Jesus is telling the truth. Peter denies Jesus. But we also look at the end of Peter's life. And we see that he was telling the truth, too, because Peter's willing to lay down his life for Jesus. But in this moment, none of his disciples understand the magnitude of the persecution and the hatred that's about to be unleashed on Jesus or on them. But Jesus knows how they're going to suffer. An incredible, horrible death. Every one of them, except one who's going to die alone in exile. He knows they're going to be sawn in half. He knows they're going to be impaled on stakes while they're still alive and covered in pitch and lit on fire. He knows they're going to be tied to wild animals and the animals sent off in different directions to rip their limbs out. He knows that they're going to be boiled in hot oil and skinned alive. He knows that they're going to be fed to lions and that Peter's going to be crucified upside down. And Jesus wants to comfort them? Let's be real. Whatever Jesus has to say here, it better be good. What's this potion? What's this secret that Jesus is going to give them that's going to comfort them? And if it does comfort them, if it works for them, then it should work for us. Because listen, 
I don't want to minimize our, our cultural moment and the stuff that's going on in our current environment and the fear on every side of the aisle and the rhetoric in the media and social media. I don't want to minimize that. The concerns are real, whatever side you're standing on, but Jesus is giving them something here that freed them from a fear of a fate much worse than anything we're currently facing right now. And just as it freed them, it will free you today from being overwhelmed by your cultural moment and the present difficulties you're facing if you'll let it. So what is it? Jesus says, here it is. You ready? Here's the potion. I have a place for you. Why are humans so connected to place? Why is place so important? Why is it, for example, that in communities all over America, freeways and progress is stopped by people who turn down vast sums of money because they refuse to give up their place? They won't do it. Why? Why is it that foreign-born Americans spend over a billion dollars annually to return to the places, the communities where they came from and experience life there again? Why? Just like salmon swimming upstream. Why is it that the great curse on Adam and Eve, the great punishment for what they did in the garden was homelessness? That there's nothing more destructive to the human psyche than not having a place, a home. Why is it that a young, ignorant, 22-year-old pastor in San Diego in an old generational Pentecostal church noticed that Sunday nights, it was only half full, so he cordoned off the back half to get everybody to sit in the front? And why is it that those members came up to him, put a finger in his face after the service and said, if you ever do that again, I'm not coming back. I can't worship without my chair. (laughs) Why? Why is place so important? Here's the reason why place is so important. You know, Eastern religions say, hey, when you die, you just go back into the all-consuming nothingness. We're not really individuals. You just go back the, the drop into the shining sea. And the Bible says, no, human beings are personal by definition. We will always be personal throughout all of eternity. Persons are local. By definition, we're localized. We're not just detached forces. We're not disembodied, esoteric, floating things. We're localized, and therefore, every human being needs a home. You need a home. I need a home. What's a home? Is it just a house? Is it just a building? Is it just a a location somewhere on a map? A home is a place where you belong. Home is a place where you're totally loved and accepted, where you can just be yourself, where the sights and the sounds and the smells and the colors, they all just seem to fit. What's a home? When you think of a home, what's a home? It's an open door and a flickering light inside and a fireplace, and you walk in, and everybody's glad to see you, and they all rise up, and they bring you in right to your chair, right? Home is a place that we dream about, that we go back and visit in our memories over and over where the smells of the food that we love linger in the air and warm our imaginations. A lot of us absolutely live off those memories. We can't wait for Christmas because we get a little taste of that nostalgia. And we constantly go back to those memories like wells to get some sense of who we are. And yet very often, when you go back and you investigate the memory you find out it was nothing like you really remembered it to be. And not only that, there's a lot of people who are like wounded birds, living incredibly angry, fear-filled lives because they don't even have a living memory of a home, 
a place where they were ever accepted, a place where they ever fit, where they could be themselves. Swiss doctor Paul Tunier says it this way. He says, children who never experience or find a home, a family, a place where they belong, grow up carrying a fundamental incapacity for attachment. We need a place. We need a home. We need one so badly that Jesus Christ is able to come to these men in the face of immense suffering and say, I have the most incredible solution. I have something that overcomes it. I have the place. I have the one you've been looking for. I have it. Everybody needs a place. And that's the first thing he teaches. And the second thing is the place we need is the Father's house. He says, I go away to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And then there's this really interesting thing he says in verse 4. Do you see it? He says, you know the way. He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas turns to him and says, Lord, what are you talking about? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense at all to me, right? Got to love Thomas. And Jesus says, yes, you do. You know the way. It's interesting, right? Because normally it seems like Jesus is saying, you think you know, but you don't. But in this verse, he's saying, you think you don't know, but you do. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, the home you've been looking for in all your homes the father you've been looking for in all of your fathers has been this one. No matter how great the fathers are you've had, no matter how great the homes are you've had, what you've been after is this one. Whether you believe in the father's house or not, whether you believe in heaven or not, this is the thing you've been yearning for. This is the real thing you've been longing for. We all long for something, don't we? We all learn for something, that sense of homeness. For example, when you first fall in love, you guys remember that when you were 12 at summer camp? The pit in your stomach and you went home? I'm going to call her every day for the rest of my life. And yeah, I'm, okay, embarrassing admission. I remember for some reason the song, uh, Aladdin had just come out and I listened to A Whole New World on repeat like 50 times. Just like, oh. <laughs> Or when you, uh, yeah, go ahead. Glad I could entertain you with my pain. <laughs> when you first get that new career, right, or you get that vacation that you've been longing to go on, or you get that new home by the sea, and just as you're getting it, you feel like you're finally going to get something you've been looking for your whole life, something. That something seems like it's just about to break through the smell of the air by the sea and the smell of her perfume. And yet, when we actually put our fingers around the prize, that something is gone. We go to dive into the oasis and we kick up a puddle of hot sand. We go to wrap our arms around that dream and poof, like Solomon says, life is a vapor. It's gone. That's something, it's it's a longing. That no lovers, no vacations, no houses by the sea, no career achievements, nothing can fulfill it. And the people who know this the most are the ones that we tend to envy in our foolishness, right? Because it's the elite. It's the ones who have the most amazing houses by the sea. And they get the highest acclaim and they get the most incredible looking lovers. And you say, hmm. And yet we laugh about the fact that a higher percentage of them are jumping off bridges. 
And a higher percentage of them are going to see therapists daily. And a higher percentage of them are acting haunted. And we laugh about it, but it's not funny. Because, see, they, they ran the race. And they finished the course. And they got the prize. And they opened the treasure chest. And they looked inside, and all there was was a mirror. Where's the joy? Where's the something? What is it that we're looking for? Jesus says it's homeness. It's the cosmic equivalent of sitting in that chair by the fire, breathing deeply, <sighs> surrounded by the love and the warmth and the joy and the family. And finally, at last, no more wondering, no more restlessness. The point Jesus is making is until you recognize that the longing you have for home will only be satisfied by the Father's house, you will spend all of your life restlessly wandering through deserts and diving into mirages. See, we, a lot of us think it's just like adrenaline junkie type stuff we're seeking, adventure and the thrill and chasing the highs we seek. But even the adventure we're looking for to recover something is, is to recover something we've lost. That's what T.S. Eliot says. I read this poem this week and this line stood out to me. He says, the end of our exploring is to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. And he's right. The Bible says we had that place, we had that home, that paradise, we had it. But we believed a lie, that there was somehow more than God, and so we ate the fruit, and we gave God the finger, and we marched out the front door and seek our adventure, and many of us find ourselves still just wandering around the world aimlessly looking for that thing that we lost. Whenever a Christian man or woman finds this out, it's like they, it's like they lose their mind trying to convince people that it's true. Here's a, here's a quote. One writer put it this way. He said, he's talking about the reason that the best marriages and the best uh, careers and the best earthly joys always leave us restless is because, he says, our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. C.S. Lewis says it this way. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. In other words, a baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest the real thing. We need a place, but the place we need is the Father's house. And until we see that, we're gonna be wandering around deserts, diving into mirages. Jesus says, the way you know. You say you don't know it, but you do. Your desire for the Father's house is strong if you'll just recognize it. That's what you've been after. That's why it always seems ready to break through and it never does because these things are just, they're just ends. They're temporary dwelling places. They're on the journey homeward. There's 200 peso a night motel rooms I saw in Rosarito as my wife and I returned from our vacation to our home where our kids were. But those places aren't home. Everybody needs a place. The place you need is the Father's house. And point number three, the Father's house is the place you need because Jesus is there. What makes it home is that Jesus is there. 
He says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So you may be with me. The point of the Father's house is that you're with Jesus. Now, what are the implications of that? That sounds great, but why does that matter for us? It's huge. It's astounding, and I want to dig into it for a second. You guys follow along with me in that? Awesome. Okay, he says, I want you to be where I am. I mean, think about that first, really briefly. The creator and sustainer of the entire universe, the savior who came and loved you and gave his life for you, wants to be with you. That's amazing. Ask yourself, how does that affect your heart when you hear it? Is your heart warmed by that or is it still distant and cold? Think about that. First of all, secondly, Jesus says in John 17, 24, just a few chapters later, he's making this prayer while he's praying to the Father. And he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Did you hear that? Just let your imagination go with me there for a second, okay? Jesus says the reason he has glory is because the Father loves him. So his glory, his substance, his everlasting greatness, his beauty, his importance, Jesus' glory is tied up in the fact that the Father has a kind of beginningless, endless, glory-forging love for him. The Father's love gives glory. The Father's love forges glory. And Jesus says, I want you to be with me on ground zero where the glory of God comes down and I want you to be right there with me. I want that glory forging love of the Father, that perfect love of the Father in the presence of God to fall on you too. And what he's actually saying is that when that happens, you will be perfect. How many of you guys would like to be perfect? One day, maybe at least 5% of you guys. Let's ask it one more time. How many of you guys want to be perfect one day? Cool. All right. We got to 85% that time. That's good. <laughs> and the slow raise. <laughs> this is what he's talking about. This is what theologians call the visio day, the vision of God, the, the beatific vision. One day we will see him as he is and we will be transformed in that moment to see God's glory and be forever changed. You say, what are you talking about, Vince? Well, John talks about it again in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we do not know what we will be like, but we know we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Did you see that? John is saying that this experience of seeing God face to face is so powerful that the moment we see him, we will be transformed into his likeness and all the love and glory and beauty will become ours. See, a lot of times in our church, we talk about justification and how you've been saved from sin in the past. And we talk about sanctification and how God is saving you right now in the present. But one of the things we need to talk about more is our future hope that glorification is coming, that one day you will be made like him because you'll see him as he is. But he doesn't stop there. He says, beloved, we don't know what we'll be like, but we know we'll be like him for we'll see him as he is. And then John goes on and says, whoever hopes thus in him purifies himself even as he's pure. Did you hear that? This experience is so powerful that to even hope for it, to even want it, will begin to change you right now. Like for the next 10 minutes, 
If you sit here today and it says, and you yearn for what we're talking about, it's not just going to be an intellectual exercise. You will get changed now. He who hopes thus in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you yearn for the glory that is yours in Christ, that inheritance that is yours, if you say, that's it, that's what I want, you will get the strength not to sin now. You will get the strength not to fail now. You will be in some small but insignificant ways changed forever into the person God is making you to be. Your hope in God's future will transform your present. I'll say that again. Your hope in God's future will transform your present. Jesus is saying, guys, you don't lose your home. You find the home you've been longing for. You don't lose yourself. You recover yourself. The, the self you were created to be. As you see him, you're renewed and forever changed. And there's no going back. It's the vision of God. But that's not all. It says here that it's not just a place where you have an experience, but it's a place. Now, what do I mean by that? All the other religions, they talk about, you know, kind of floating around and joining the ether, so to speak. But when they talk about the future, it's this ethereal, disembodied kind of existence. They don't really satisfy your need as a person for a place. But there's a, a placeness about this place, a concreteness to it. Hey, did you guys, anybody read CBR this week? In, five? Awesome. The same five, too. I love it, man. <laughs> Um, in Luke, one of my favorite parts I was reading, Jesus comes in after the resurrection in his new resurrection body, and he comes in, he's hanging out with disciples, and it records, and he ate a fish. Why? Why does it? Great, you know? But think about it. He, he ate a fish. In the resurrection, it's awkward, right? In the resurrection, that was so funny, the tension there. Um, the resurrection in that in, in heaven, it's a place where we eat. It's a place where we laugh and love and learn and grow. The resurrection isn't less of a reality, it's more of a reality. Does that make sense? I don't know what you guys think about the re- resurrection, but there's more of a concreteness about it. The Father's house contains the new heavens and the new earth. And what will that be like? Think about it this way. If this world with all of its seas and canyons and mountain peaks and and valleys and mysteries and all of its beauty and glory is what God gives to the people who have stood against him as his enemies, what do you think the world is going to be like for his friends? Yesterday, as Ivan and I were at Costco walking around waiting for our dog's prescription, we walked by the TV aisle, you know, which of course was all decked out for Super Bowl because... Maybe some of you bought TVs there. I don't know, but it was HD TVs and 4K plasma TVs and like five other kinds of TVs. I don't even, I can't keep up, right? It's just amazing. And all, on, the, on the screen of the TVs was a blade of grass. And they were showing how clear and beautiful it was. And I thought, you know, what's a blade of grass going to be like in heaven? It's probably going to be so clear and beautiful and sharp and vivid that to see it, to behold it, you'll just fall down and worship God because it's going to be so amazing. Does that make any sense? It'll be too, too much for you to bear the beauty of it. Daniel 1, or 12 says, we'll shine like stars in the sun. You see, we won't just admire the beauty around us, but according to scripture, We'll put on the morning star. We'll put on the splendor of the sun. That beauty we see around us won't just be out there anymore. It'll become part of us. It'll pass into us. 
Don't ask me about what your glorified self will be. I don't know. Who knows? But have you ever met somebody who was born blind who never saw light? Or somebody who was born deaf? Somebody, you have five senses in somebody else who has four. And you try to explain something to them that's beyond their realm of senses. You can try to explain it, but at the end of the day, it's going to fall short of their understanding. In that place, maybe you won't have five senses. Maybe you'll have a hundred senses. Maybe a thousand senses. Can you imagine that? Ten thousand senses? Can you imagine that? What will the world be like? Try to explain it. Like we're vegetables now compared to what we're going to be then. Nancy, my wife, sometimes tells people she wants to eat them. Um. I, that's how I feel, right? It's awkward. And I think what she means by that is they're so, like a baby, so cute. Oh my gosh, I can gobble you up. You ever heard somebody say that? And it's always been weird to me um, whenever she said that. And to this point, I don't think she has actually eaten people. Um, you'll have to ask her. But um, Nancy and I just had our anniversary, and as we sat in Baja, and um, I'm sitting across the table from her at Puerto Nuevo eating lobster for breakfast, right? And I'm looking across at her at the table. I just, I, she's not here so I can see it. I got overwhelmed with her beauty for a moment. She looks so lovely. And I, I just wanted to kiss her. And guess what? I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to hug her and squeeze her. And I did. And, but I noticed that it was like the hug wasn't enough. It was, there was this like impulse to just like pull her into myself. But we can't do that. There's, the beauty around us, we're limited with how much we can engage with it, right? Yeah. Have you ever felt that way about someone or something? The beauty around you, you just like, we want to bathe in it, you want to swim in it? You want, yeah. All the guys better raise your hand. I saw that. <laughs> I'm going to read this quote by C.S. Lewis, and it's a lengthy quote, but it really gets at what I'm trying to say here. So hang with this. I love this. Um, I didn't put it on the screen, so maybe just close your eyes and listen, or, or whatever works best for you. Uh, we do not want merely to see beauty. Though God knows even that is bounty enough, we want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why we have peopled the air and the earth and the water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves. And I think if he was writing this now, he might say in Twilight Vampires, <laughs> that though we cannot live as we wish, yet those projections can. They enjoy themselves in that beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into human face, but it won't, or at least not yet. For if we take the imagery of scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near to the truth as prophecy. See, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with a rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. This 
This is the glory. In my Father's house are many mansions. Augustine says the rapture of the glorified soul of seeing his face will flow over into the body. Paul says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. There's one last thing about this text. You notice it doesn't just say there's a mansion. It says what? There's mansions. When Jesus talks about this place and why it's going to be so great, what it means to be with him, first, we'll see him. Secondly, we'll be transformed into his likeness. And thirdly, we will have a love between each other that we can't imagine. It doesn't say there's one mansion. It says there's many mansions. There's, there's lots of people there. You know, one of the most wonderful experiences you can, you can have in life is to completely open up to somebody. Have you ever had that happen? Like to, to be completely vulnerable, to be, to be naked and unashamed and let a person see you down to the core of who you are and have that person rejoice in what they see. Not just tolerate, right? Not just accept you, but rejoice, to glorify, to be amazed by what they see. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had somebody look that deep into you and rejoice in it, exalt in it? To know you as you are and love you as you are? That's a pretty rare experience. If you've ever had that happen, you can't put it into words. It's sublime. It's amazing. But it's nothing compared to the perfect love and unity that will bind all our hearts together. The love we're going to experience between one another there is so much above any of the best love you'll ever experience is here. As a a wedding dress is above an oil rack, right? It's going to be amazing. And Jesus Christ says, I want to take you to ground zero of the glory of the love of God. I want to let it fall on you. And I want you to see my face and know me as I am. And I want to know you as you are and love you. Lastly, don't you see, how can you face death? How can you face troubles? How can you deal with the pleasant perplexities and anxieties and injustices we see around us? Jesus says the secret to it all is to know we need a place. The place you need is the Father's house, and the reason you need it is because he'll be there. Now, lastly, let me just make this point, because I know there might be some of you that say, this is a lovely doctrine. I love all the poetry. It's great. I closed my eyes when you read that one part, but how's that apply to tomorrow? Because we've got some serious stuff going on around us. Why are you talking to us about pie in the sky and the sweet by and by someday when we're dealing with all the junk and the drama that surround us? And I would say this is going to help more than anything for two reasons, in two ways. Unless you understand the bigger world, right? We have a big world, but a much bigger world beyond ours. You won't have the power to love the people you should, and you won't have the power to face troubles in your life. Unless you understand what Jesus is talking about here with heaven, you won't have the power to love people like you should. And you won't have power to face the troubles of this life. You'll cope some other way. So first of all, the power to love people. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Another way to say that is don't get lost in despair. Yes, culturally, politically, racially, like things are, things are tough right now. And it's not just sorrow. It's not just grieving that's going on. There's a despair that's kicking in. Have you seen it? Have you felt it? Some people are just overwhelmed by the cultural moment. And our view of what Jesus says here directly informs that. Our view of the future affects how we deal with our present. 
So if you're disconnected from this promise of eternity, maybe, maybe you don't believe it at all, maybe it seems just so far off that it doesn't really apply to now, it's pie in the sky, then you'll obsess about your present moment until it overwhelms you. On the other hand, if you misunderstand the promise of eternity, maybe you're so heavenly minded you're no earthly good, you only care about eternity so you just throw trash on the sidewalk because the world's burning up anyway. Drive your Humvee with your rifle rack just rolling over trees, you know? (laughs) Then you're missing Jesus' main point that how you view eternity will drastically impact the way you live your life now. If you want to see real change here and now, you don't need to be somebody who views heaven less. You need more of a view into heaven. If you want the kingdom of God to break into this world, if you want the kingdom where there's no more war or famine or racism or disease or suffering or poverty or injustice or or death, if you want that, then you need to be dreaming more about what it looks like. You need to be captured by a greater vision of that coming world. The Christians who brought social change, the Christians who fought racial injustice, who built hospitals and ended slavery and, and, and marched for women's rights were the Christians who'd been captured and entranced by a greater vision of a coming kingdom. So they were able to, to pour their lives out in love because they'd seen a God who became man and poured his life out in love for them. And they saw this glimpse of the future that there was coming a day where they would take hold of a life, take hold of a love greater than any they'd experienced. So they were willing to lay their lives down. If we don't understand the love of God that's ours in Christ and what, what he's gonna pour out on us, we won't have the strength to pour out our love right now for one another. Are we tracking? In the old days, if you were fighting a battle, they had this thing called a watchtower, right? And you were fighting the battle, and you're down there, and you're outnumbered two to one, and you're trying to figure out if you're ever going to win. And, and the way the Bible pictures it, you just kind of go up to the watchtower, and you look out. And all of a sudden, you catch a bigger vision. And you see the lay of the land, and you say, there they are. There's our reinforcements. They're coming. There's our friends. The army, they're coming. And now you go back down from the watchtower, and you get back into the battle, and you're just as bloody And you're just as outnumbered as you were before, but you caught a greater vision. You saw where things were going, and so now you fight with vigor because you know what's going to happen. You know where things are heading, right? Does that make sense? Or Super Bowl. Today's Super Bowl Sunday, so let's talk about that. Maybe you bought that TV at Costco, and and you're going to go home and have your Super Bowl party, right? And you got your chips and dip, and then something happens, and you can't make it, so you TiVo the Super Bowl. Is Is TiVo even a word? You record, so yeah, I'm dating myself. Um, you DVR the Super Bowl, right? And one of your friends, you're talking to your friends, and you're like, yeah, I'm about to get home right now. That, that was crazy. And your friend says, oh, man, it was awesome. You should have seen how the Patriots kicked butt, right? And so assuming you're a Patriots fan, you're very excited. Maybe you're not a Patriots fan. If not, just go with me, okay? And so now you go home, and you're watching the Super Bowl, and the Patriots are down. And then the Super Bowl progresses, third quarter, halftime show. That was cool. Third quarter, fourth quarter. Now they're down by 50 points. You're not freaking out. You're not terrified because you know they won. You're just more amazed. You're like, how are they going to pull this out? I cannot wait to see 
the pass that the quarterback's going to throw, it's going to be amazing, right? Well, what we have in this picture of not only the gospel, right, of what Jesus did for us in the past, but how it carries through until our glorification, we know the end. We know the future. We know we win. If you have that as a picture, you're free, right? You're free to, hey, John, you're free to... But if you're playing the game, if you were playing in the Super Bowl today and you knew that you guys were going to win, you'd be free to play however you wanted. You'd be making up some crazy, stupid plays. And then I want you to run in six circles, backward and forward. You'd just be making stuff up. And guess what? You wouldn't be worried about it because you know you win. Throw hard, run long, you win. That's the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we win. So we don't have to be overwhelmed by our cultural moment. Now I've talked about the Super Bowl and I'm never going to be able to say the point number two because we're all thinking about that now. So let me just, let me just close it like this. Let's, um, let's pray, actually. I want you to think about this and ask yourself right before I pray if you believe this truth. Marco, it's the last slide on here. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was God? That he died for your sins? That on the cross he defeated death? That he rose triumphant over the grave? That he passed into the heavens and is now seated before the Father preparing a place for you? If you believe that, then there's comfort no matter what you face. See, if you don't believe that, this life is all there is. And if something comes and takes away your health or your wealth or your happiness, you're stuck. But if you've got a living hope today, of the future that Jesus has promised, it'll pull you through anything, amen? So Christians, let not your heart be troubled. Think about this promise. I I just wanna say this too. Christianity is such a thinking person's religion because like, think about this. Like, let the glory of this promise dawn on you. Christianity doesn't minimize problems. It doesn't just say, hey, behind, behind every silver cloud, there's a silver lining, Just, you know, problems come and problems go. Christianity says, no, your problems are real. But your problems aren't the end of the story. There's coming a future that Jesus has purchased for you with his own blood. What are you going to do with death? What are you going to do with your troubles? My daughter, um, my daughter Lily is trying to get into colleges right now. She's writing all this stuff. She's going to SAT prep courses. She's working her butt off to get into a good college. And I started thinking like, Thank God that heaven's not that way. We don't have to work our butt off and prove ourselves to get into heaven. The good news of how we get into heaven, it's, it's like this. Um, I was a little boy. Uh, my dad had a good friend who was, who was great friends with President Ronald Reagan, randomly. So my dad would fly to D.C. two to three times a year. He knew the Bush administration he'd go during that time. I remember going and sitting in inaugurations, and I'm not pitching any political party here by any means. I'm just saying, I remember being in the Lincoln bedroom. I remember being in places that the, the, it's the, the most powerful man in the world and being there as a little like kid and thinking, how do we get here? It wasn't because my dad won an Olympic gold medal. If you saw my dad, you would know why. <laughs> Love you, Dad. 
And it's not because of our SAT scores. My dad knew somebody who got us in. And in the same way, the way we get into the Father's house isn't through our striving. It isn't through our our perfect performance. The way we get in is you know somebody who loves you and loves the Father, and he opens the door from the inside. He says, welcome in. Welcome in the Father's house. And maybe, maybe you don't know him yet today. Maybe today's your first day. I want to pray that even in this moment, you would feel the love of God warming your heart and calling it himself. And maybe you're on the other side of this. Maybe you're like, man, Christianity is just too weak sauce for me. You don't know the passions I've got. I've got drives, right? And I'm like, in your dreams, okay? Because you have, you have no idea. Your passion, your love, your lust for joy and glory and these things that you're longing for isn't too strong. It's too weak, Here you are messing around with sex and wine and career ambition when infinite glory's at stake. What you need is not less drive. You need to ask God to give you more drive for him to understand the glory he has for you. So whatever side you're on, if you're the religious one working your butt off to try to prove yourself to God, or if you're the rebel who's running from God, the good news of the gospel's for you today. You don't have to earn your way into heaven, and heaven isn't milk soppy. It's even more pleasurable than you can imagine. And Jesus wants to prepare a place for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your grace. All these wonderful things that you've given us as gifts that we get to experience here in this world. I pray that we would be able to worship you through these gifts, the, the wine and the sex and all the wonderful gifts you've given us, that they would be, they would find their proper place in our relationship with you, that we trust you with them, but that we would never make them our home. Otherwise, we'll be lost forever and we'll be wondering and never find home and it'll always be December and never be Christmas. But today we've seen that only Jesus Christ can prepare a place for us. And the place that will satisfy us is your house because Jesus is there. So Father, as we sing along to the music and as we come up and take communion, help us to remember, to remember as you told us that you opened the way for us. Your son became the way for us. You lived a perfect life, Jesus, every day in your flesh. So as we take the cracker and the bread and we put that to our mouth, we remember that your very perfect righteousness has become ours. We don't have to work our butts off to to make it one day. And you spilled your blood out in our place to pardon us from all our sin and our passionate chasings of all the lesser things and the the things that would distract us from home so that we could be brought home to the Father's house, so that we could have a place at the table, so we could stop wandering through deserts and diving into mirages. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for all of us. Now we give our hearts to you, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the strength to face our troubles, give us the love with which we can love people who are even difficult to love at times and the the hope we need to live this life from knowing that Jesus is preparing a place in our Father's house. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.